Hello, this is Gary Van Wormerdam, and this is the Awareness and Consciousness Podcast from PathwayToHappiness.com. Today's topic is fear, and how fear leads to anger and other emotions. Emotions being the big elephant in the room nobody wants to talk about, but yet are behind all the strings of what we do in so many ways. Before we get to that, let me give you just a minute of background. These awareness and consciousness podcasts aren't intended to be any means for real change. They are really about the playing field that we live on in terms of our imagination, our mind, our beliefs, our emotions. Love, fear, all the mental imagery that we run and how we react to it. These podcasts, this free audio, is meant to be helpful in understanding the playing field in terms of gaining control of our mind. The actual steps and what to do to take control of your mind, your thoughts, your beliefs, your emotions, and gain mastery over yourself. Those action steps are in the self-mastery program can sign up for the first few sessions are free and then if you want to continue for a relatively small fee you can download and practice those sessions in your own self-paced kind of program they are essentially the sessions i would teach to my clients in the beginning the fundamental basics of how to deal with their mind uh, except you can download them for a fraction of the price uh, right now the price is about a hundred dollars for the first 14 sessions don't know how long it'll stay that way. The playing field, to better understand the playing field, is what these free audios are about. Fear. Big topic. Big, huge topic. The one nobody wants to talk about. It's uncomfortable. We've been conditioned through society... Not just not to notice our fears, but not to notice really or be present with or feel them for very long. Any uncomfortable emotions like fear. They're the things that get repressed and pushed into the subconscious, unconscious. And yet they're still there. uh, Very often building up pressure. Creating things like anger and insecurity and jealousy and they gain so much pressure that they explode and underneath all those dynamics of behavior uh, around other emotions of anger and jealousy and greed and ego arrogance underneath it is some kind of fear pretty much there's a thread there We don't really notice the fear because we're so busy either in the reaction, say, of anger or the controlling mechanism or we're focused on the other person, not not even noticing, not even noticing until after the fact our own emotion and afterwards the next day or an hour later going, wow, what the heck came over me? Uh, Then we look at our behavior, but we don't look at the fear that led up to it. 
when we find the fear and we get rid of that, well, all those behaviors and those emotions, psh, the pressure comes out. It's finding the relief valve. And then they don't build up, we don't explode. We don't engage in those controlling strategies. Same way. You know, from early on, we were taught not to deal directly with fear. And by fear, I'm talking about the emotion. I'm talking about the underlying assumptions in the mind that generate fear. You know, when we were little kids, and or if you have little kids, and usually there's some point where we become afraid of the dark. We become afraid of monsters in the closet and monsters under the bed and the boogeyman or something like that. And the approach that's taken is, okay, let's leave the light on. We have a little night light on. We leave the door cracked with the light on in the hallway. There's a, what I call compensating strategy. When we're young, it's a little difficult to challenge the fears and what's going on in our imagination. So this is the best we can do. We try to control the environment. We try to make it safe. We don't directly challenge what's going on in the imagination. But we feel better by doing these things. And I'll call them compensating strategies or controlling strategies. Controlling the environment. In life, though, what turns out is you cannot completely control all circumstances, all environments. We are exposed to the elements. There's forces of nature, some forces of the world. Um, as much as we like to think we could make ourselves feel safe. Um, you know, no amount of insurance policy, uh, the largest SUV with airbags, the uh, fact that you get a chauffeur or you, whatever you do, you get your own house behind private gates, uh, doesn't protect you from these cycles of life. They're compensating strategies very often for fear. You know, people would be afraid of such and such, and they get a bigger house, they get alarm systems, they get security systems, they build bigger fences and walls. Those are compensating strategies. And trying to protect themselves from the outside world or what-ifs, not realizing that what they really want to change is how they feel. Now, they build a big wall, this compensating strategy, equivalent to leaving the light on. But internally, their emotion shifts, but it's not really solved the fear problem. It's just built a compensating strategy. You know, the next year, you might hear a story of someone else, and that adds to more fear, and now you have to build a taller wall. You have to get armed guards now, and, you know, it can go on and on. And so we start fighting these outside forces that we can see in a hope and with an intent to change the emotion inside that we can't see, yet we feel. Not realizing that we are the one creating the internal emotion. We just don't know how. 
We think it has something to do with the number of protection systems around us. But no, we created the emotion long before that. So it's easier to see how we do this when we look at other people. And so we'll start there. And then I will walk us into perhaps a little bit how we do that ourselves. Um, and why not just to uh, stir things up, have some real life practical examples of what goes on in the world today. Because I talk about these emotions as if they're pretty abstract, as if they're all play in the imagination, they don't really affect us. Well, they impact us in a huge way. They impact everybody. They impact the way we vote, the people we elect, and the policies that are made as a government between nations, between countries. You know, the very mechanism of imagination and creating fear from fear-based assumptions that drives us to be jealous with our partner and angry and insecure from, oh, no, what's going to happen to me, is the very same kind of logic that drives countries to go to war. The mind operates in the same way when you look at those fear-based beliefs and the emotions driving it. Um, You will find in the show notes, I think they're called, um, where the podcast is displayed on my website, some references to the different things that I will talk about here, whether it be books or videos um, or other websites. The classic example of aggression that we can talk about is, uh, that's often referred back to in modern times, is Hitler's and the attack on the Jews, a whole culture of people. If you read the stories and the website of a gentleman named Ben Ferenz, and I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly, he was a prosecutor at the Nuremberg trials, and he interviewed uh, the SS officers who were very much in charge of that program of genocide and extermination. And in conversations with these very bright, educated people, uh, these men of the SS, they were very matter-of-factly stating that we had to do this. Uh, These culture of Jewish men, they were a threat to our society. They were a threat to the fatherland. They would have challenged us and torn us down, and therefore, in order to save our country and, and hold our republic together, we need to get rid of them. And the logic was, well, why, why kill the women? He says, well, if you kill the men, then the women become outraged and, and they begin to fight you and tear you down. And so we had to kill the women. And the children, he says, well, they'll grow up and they will become adversaries of the state. And so we had to exterminate the children also. And so it's this kind of logic of protection, defense, against not an enemy so much as an imagined enemy, an imagined enemy of the future, an imagined enemy of how the women will react, imagined enemy of what this culture of people will do to them. And this fear based assumption of what will happen and what they need to do to protect themselves as a compensating strategy from it is all based in the assumption 
what will happen to me, what will happen to this republic. And they come to an occlusion that's fear-based. We will be hurt. We will, our country is threatened. Fear. And then the compensating strategy is defense. We need to attack them. And their attack, their aggression, is justified. We'll call it a compensating strategy, not against a real problem, but against an imagined problem. And the layer below that imagined problem is fear. Or I should say that that imagined problem, what will happen to us, generates a fear, but that what will happen to us is the fear-based assumption. Generates the fear, and then you get the compensating strategy and the policy. This kind of logic, whether it be in our personal relationships or in a macrocosmic level of countries making national policy, cultures making cultural policy, any organization as a collective group, it's a very understandable in terms of a primal instinct of fight or flight. You know, as a physical being, we grow up with any physical being, any animal, if it's hurt or there's a threat of being hurt or killed in any way, there's this instinctual survival of fear that produces flight or fight, which produces the aggression. You could say that aggression is a protection mechanism for own survival. So that's a very base physical instinct that causes us either to run from a dangerous situation, to flee it, or if we're cornered or animals can't flee and they're cornered, they will fight. We as humans essentially do the same thing. The funny thing, uh, not in a ha-ha way, but in an interesting way, funny, is that the way the human mind dreams is we have a lot more active imagination. We can imagine things that aren't there. If you take a dog and that dog has been beaten, if someone comes up to pet that dog, even that dog will assume that it's going to be in for another beating. At a certain point, that dog will either shy away from anybody who comes near it or it will bite and attack anybody who comes near it. Even if that person approaching that animal is there to love it and take care of it and feed it, it will still attack because it's conditioned to respond to protect itself or to run away. They can't run away. It'll get angry. And people look at that dog and say, well, that's a mean, evil dog. Well, that dog has been trained to be 
evil. That dog has been conditioned in its mind to react a certain way. And it appears evil. But what it is really, it's afraid. It's afraid. And it's hurt. And it feels threatened. See, from the dog's point of view of logic, it's just protecting itself. It's naturally going to assume, after being beaten so many times, that it's going to be in for another beating. It's just protecting itself from more beatings. What's interesting in the human mind is, emotionally, we don't even have to have a physical beating. That beating can be emotional. Verbal abuse, we can then react emotionally. But more interesting is our own negative self-judgments can be so self-abusive that we become so emotionally hurt and wounded that we become angry. You know, when we see humans that are mean, angry, we might think of them as evil. But if you see underneath that, Basically, what you'll see is a human being that's emotionally wounded, afraid of being hurt anymore. Even though very often as adults, they aren't being hurt anymore. In their mind, they imagine being hurt or they've developed such self-judgments and self-abuse that they feel abused all the time by their own mind. They might blame other people. Oh, they're judging me. The person they're imagining is still in their own mind. It doesn't mean the emotion they feel of being judged and rejected and abused isn't real. It's just that they've imagined the scenario that creates that emotion. But the way it's created is artificial. This paradigm of how then fear creates aggression. That from the outside looks evil, but from the inside for the person doing it is logical, is self-preservation, is necessary is right, is just. That perception that people on the outside that go against them, they're evil. It's easier to look back into history and look at other cultures and see this. It's harder to look at our own culture and see this. It's harder because it's more uncomfortable to look at ourselves and see this. For the reasons I said earlier, we've been conditioned not to be comfortable with our emotions, which are the very things we create. Yet, <laughs> we spend a lot of time reacting to these things that we create, not realizing it. If you look at the history of the United States, a very interesting read of American foreign policy as run by the CIA, a book called Legacy of Ashes. It's a history of covert operations, essentially, in the CIA. Post-World War II, lots of operations were taken on in the U.S. to go into foreign countries and without getting into the details of all that, topple governments, um, 
that were not considered friendly or conducive to United States policy or that might be leaning too far towards communism. And so there were these policy decisions, but behind those policy decisions was the Red Scare. This fear of this belief system called communism. And this had a lot to do with why we were in wars in Southeast Asia. Places like that. Now, you won't find in the history books, as you read the stories of all this, the details of the emotion that's behind the policy. What you'll find is the policy. Well, we need to go there because A, B, C, D, and E. But if you look underneath the policy decisions to that logic, and underneath that logic you'll find emotion, and underneath that emotion of fear, you'll find assumptions. The assumptions that, oh, if one country falls, the next one will fall, the next one will fall. Domino theory. It's a fear-based assumption. In that what-if scenario. And so now, in an idea of protectionism, from this what-if fear-based scenario, aggression seems like a good idea for protection. It appears as a good idea, but it's only afterwards as a reaction to these fear-based assumptions that may or may not be true. You see the same kind of logic post-September 11th. Now, given this condition in the world, yes, there are forces that of individuals that appear evil, that would like to harm, hurt, overthrow the power of the United States. Interesting thing is a lot of these individuals are in countries where the United States has supported aggression against the people, against the government. And taking the case of Iran, which in 1953 was a parliamentary democratic system that was leaning towards changes in policy, U.S. opposed, based on fear, it looked too much like socialism, communism, was not a favorable capitalistic society, certain operations to have the government overthrown, the Shahs installed, supported by the U.S., CIA, secret police operations supported by the CIA, run amok, harming a lot of people, People are abused, physically, killed, emotionally they're afraid, they feel beaten up emotionally. They understand the U.S. government supporting that kind of operation. And we are the enemy, the aggressor, and we appear evil from their point of view. Tensions persist for years. Through that anger, 
you know, even in the 70s, hostages were taken. Very little at the time did I understand about the history going back 25 years from their point of view. And the U.S. relationship with Iran and support of basically a dictatorship regime. I'm not here to condemn the United States. I'm here to talk about the emotion that gets created. I'm here to talk about this perception of evil. And behind evil is that understandable kind of aggression. But all behind that is fear. And very often behind that is fear-based assumptions that aren't true. So anyhow, Iran becomes an aggressor to the United States after the United States become an aggressor to Iran. And who knows who threw the first stone before that? Because I haven't studied the history. But now, this is not uncommon policy uh, to other places in the world, United States, and supporting other dictators. So we've created enemies. So the United States has created enemies from another point of view. And now that instinct is to bite back. And from our point of view, if we don't understand why, it's because we don't understand necessarily not just the policy, but the emotional impact, the dynamic of fear and the history of behavior. And so, interestingly enough, now we feel hurt. We feel threatened, say, by a country like Iran. We run in our imagination what-if scenarios. This might happen, that might happen. We create fear. And then we create decision-making processes that produce policy. And we may try and change the policy, but as long as we have fear underneath it and fear-based what-if scenarios underneath that, our decision-making policies are very likely going to go in the direction of aggression to fight back, acting as a big wounded fight-or-flight mechanism. And flight doesn't look like an option. It's called backing down egotistically to the ego and justification. It looks like it's not possible because then you're being cowardly, you're being afraid, and so you have to fight back. And so one side becomes the aggressor, the other side is hurt, they fight back, and now the other side is hurt and it fights back, and the other side is hurt and it fights back. And you have an ongoing conflict not much different than, say, Israel and Palestine, each side afraid of the other. Some of those based in real pain and real loss, but a lot of policy based in the imagined scenario of future pain and future loss, 
each side trying to push so hard to hurt the other side that the other side backs down, when in fact all it does is inflame the other side towards a more aggressive policy. So, po so post 9-11, the United States is attacked, and then a wave after the shock, a wave of fear sweeps the collective consciousness of the country. And it goes from fear of the next attack, more terrorist attacks, to what that might look like, giving it more detail, fueling in the imagination fears of mushroom clouds, chemical weapons, weapons of mass destructions. And all those fear-based assumptions producing the emotion a fight-or-flight mechanism, not because it's real at that point. At least it's, there, there's possible reason to be afraid that's real, but the level that fear went to was not a real level of fear. It wasn't consistent with the actual threat. The level of fear we went to that pushed things to aggression was largely based on imagination and assumptions. And now justification for war is given. Fight them over there so we don't have to fight them over here. As if it's inevitable. That logic says it's inevitable. As if it's going to be a large-scale invasion. Is that kind of logic. But it's a fear-based logic from that fight-or-flight point of view, from that state of perception, which is a fear state of perception, it appears true, even though it's not necessarily true. And whenever you're operating in that underlying paradigm of fear, you are going to go one of two directions. You're going to flee to get away from the perceived threat, even if it's an imagined threat, or you go into a fight, fight or flight. Largely in this dynamic, the fear is not from a real threat. The fear, yes, impartially, there's a real threat, but it has a history it has been building, going back and forth. But largely, it exists in the imagination of the mind. We imagine potential scenarios of the future, and then we take action to preemptively. I say this Using the example of the U.S., yes, I live here. And I use this example, but this example is the same in any culture. You can look in a Middle Eastern country, the mind of a terrorist, uh, Israel, Palestine, you know, even 
even within the U.S., different groups against each other, even if it's not a physical war level, Democrat versus Republican. One group is offended over what was said about them. And so they fight back and they make disparaging comments in return. They attack back. And then the other side reacts. They attack back and the other side reacts and they attack back. And very often escalating, polarizing a common people. In the U.S., it's mostly words. Internationally, it's words. Sometimes it's bombs and guns and bullets. All polarizing a people. And each side, under the assumption that the other side is to blame, the other side is the aggressor, each side saying the other side appears evil. But if you look from the other person's point of view, it makes sense from their point of view, their belief system and how they feel. And so you have a paradigm of aggression. Nobody wanting to back down because then the story, as if it's the only option one goes to, is, oh, you'll look weak, and then they'll, more people will attack you. When I don't know that one will really look weak, I tend to think that one will look perhaps sane. Because the insanity is to continue the aggression back and forth, waiting for the other side to stop. It's harder to see in these national, international scenarios because it happens over decades. It's hard to see because it happens in this world of imagination in the mind. But it happens. We look at the policy, but it's hard to see what's behind the policy, what's in a person's mind that's driving it. I will put uh, on the website where this podcast is located an interview, and it was with Doug Feith, Doug Faith, Feith, Feith, assistant to Secretary of Defense Rumsfeld, who wrote a book. He was interviewed on the Daily Show by John Stewart. And he has a particular line in there about right at the end of the interview of at the time they were considering going to war with Iraq, one of the things that they looked at was, okay, what if this happens? What if there is an attack? What if there's uh, an attack? And no, we don't know all of Saddam's capability, but assuming the worst case scenario, which is what fear would have you do, and the United States was attacked by Saddam Hussein, what would people think? What would they think after the fact? It says, okay, you could have done something beforehand, but you didn't. And he describes it as being worried, which is a small, subtle clue to the underlying assumption of fear. And not just fear of 
citizens being harmed, but fear of what would people think? How would they be perceived? What is their image, their ego image that they are trying to defend? And this is part of the logic. And you find it in the smallest of places, but it has huge ramifications. Maybe this is what the very wise man said. If you live by the sword, you shall die by the sword, was referring to in some way. That aggression leads to a reaction of aggression. I don't know if this is what he meant. I wasn't there and I'm not able to ask him the exact interpretation, but I see a relationship in my interpretation but I can't claim to say what anybody else meant. But the big problem is not that we look at aggression and we try and control another country's aggression. That's just a symptom. That's just a compensating strategy, a controlling mechanism. That's like uh, taking a broom you know, to, to a little kid's room who's afraid of the dark and just go sweeping it around the closet say, okay, I got the monsters out. You haven't really addressed what the real issue, and the real issue is fear. Fear that's in the mind. Because you can have all the aggression you want, and you can try and control everything all you want, but, you know, to other people, that looks like aggression. That looks like something they should be afraid of. So the stronger you are, the more powerful you are, the more you wave your sword around, the more fear you invite into other people's minds, the more that you appear to be the aggressor, the more that then they feel threatened and they start to think we have to do something to protect ourselves. I think one of the reasons that perhaps Gandhi is so revered is he introduced us to a different way. He looked at these options. He said, I can either fight this injustice or I can flee, I can leave this country. And he sat with those two for a while and then he said, I will do neither. I will neither fight nor will I flee. There's more than two options. There's more than two options in our personal relationships as well. You know, if our partner isn't doing what we want, if we feel insecure, if we're afraid, if we react to that because we kind of become controlling of them, we try and know what they're doing all the time, we get mad and angry at them, so they... We don't have to do that, but we don't have to flee either. You see... The real enemy in all this generally isn't the other person. And the real enemy isn't even our anger or aggression. That's just a reaction to fear that we feel. And fear, which is the real enemy, 
is based in the lies we believe, the what-ifs we tell ourselves that we put our faith in. The real fear exists as a scenario in our imagination that we invest in. You see, I will tell you that I am all about a war on terror, which is to say I am all about a war on fear. But you can't fight fear with aggression. Because if you try and control someone else's behavior, they become afraid. And now there's more fear. You're planting the seeds of more aggression. Even if you just try and change someone's belief, you challenge their beliefs. Their beliefs feel threatened. Their mind of beliefs feels threatened, and they might perceive it as a personal threat. And they go to fear, and they attack back. Verbally, in terms of beliefs, they defend themselves. You see, the way I fight fear is a little different than fighting humans. You see, to really fight fear, I need humans as allies. And collectively, they fight fear. And where is that battleground of fear? Where, where is that enemy? It exists in the mind. And what is the source of fear? Lies. Believing in things that make us afraid. And we can say that, well, there's things to be afraid of. I might get killed. Well, death is inevitable. You know, trying to control how and when is just a delaying strategy. Um, but so death is inevitable. The part that's optional is will we be afraid? Will we become an aggressor? Those parts, those are optional. Will we live by the sword and die by the sword? That's a choice. You know, I was, had hoped to make this podcast available sometime sooner, and I was flipping around. I was like, how do I do this? It's all over the place. and uh, Hopefully I'm making some sense here. And one of the, the challenges is it's easier to see this kind of dynamic in a macroscopic international level. And you can see it in the words, the subtle words, like I point out in this Doug Fyth interview. There's one or two lines in there that he talks about worry and what if that kind of tell you the whole structure of emotion that policy was built on. And I'm pointing to something that's very subtle and very small in the mind in the midst of very, these very large external wars. And it's like, where did the seed for all this aggression and anger come from? It came from something that we hardly see. This little bit of emotion turned into big emotion in the mind. And blinds us to what we do. the behaviors we adopt. And 
a friend was telling me about this dream he had, and I thought this was a great way to understand where the problem lies, the real problem, not the compensating strategies of aggression that we do about it that appear to be the problem, but the what happens in the imagination that blinds us to this and makes us unconscious. He was describing a dream he had, and in the dream, he was with his friends, and uh, it was like a Friday the 13th, Freddy Krueger movie. I think that's the right movie series. And Freddy Krueger, in the movies, he gets into people's dreams. And this gentleman, he was out with his friends, and he was realizing that Freddy Krueger was after him, him and his friends, and he would see what would happen when Freddy Krueger would come into the dreams of his, the dream and mind of his friends. His friends would start to attack him and become the aggressor. And he started to realize that, you know, when Freddy Krueger gets in a mind, that mind starts to perceive everyone around them, even their friends, as enemies. Starts to perceive that these people are a threat and are going to hurt him. And so he fights them. So this gentleman was having his friends start to attack him. And he's like trying to explain, no, no, I'm your friend. I'm on your side. I'm not here to hurt you. But these people were blinded by Freddy Krueger, which is to say they were blinded by their fear. And then he, or we could say fear started to get into his mind, except he was aware of the way it worked. And he started to see his friends also as demons that would attack him. And he began to watch the world in split screen. He would see the way he projected or the way Freddy Krueger of fear was projecting the world to be. And he had to discount it. He said, okay, I know that's my projection of fear. That dream is false. And I said, I have to know the way it really is or the way it can be. He says, because if I fall into fear, we're all done. My chance for sanity lies in not believing what my mind projects. This is the spiritual path that that most all spiritual paths at some point kind of lay out of being the observer of the mind. And understanding that there is what the mind projects and then there is another world that we see that's not discolored or distorted by our assumptions about it, our fears, insecurities and aggressions. that behind those appearances of someone that is evil or that we would label as evil, that there's a person and that person is trying to survive the best way that they know how, protecting themselves very often, protecting their family, protecting their homeland, their way of life, their belief systems. And they're doing it in the best way they know how, either through fight or flight, which is a very limited kind of consciousness. 
you could say that it's a kind of ignorance. We could say that it's an ignorance because it doesn't realize, or one in that frame of being the aggressor, doesn't realize where that road goes. That this is a perpetual state of tit-for-tat, aggression-for-aggression that goes on forever until somebody decides to do neither. Somebody wakes up, observes the dynamic like Gandhi did and said, you know what, I'm going to do neither. You know, beware of whenever the mind's offering you two choices because if, if you only have two choices, then, you know, you're probably missing some opportunities for free will. So we could say that that modality of fear and aggression is ignorant of other choices. And what appears to be evil in that consciousness of an aggressor is really just a combination of ignorance and fear. I mean, this is what evil is in a way. This is really what the basis of evil is. It looks like aggression, but underneath the aggression, it's a combination of ignorance and fear. And by ignorance, I don't mean stupidity. Mind you, going back to the SS crowd under Hitler in Nazi Germany, a very bright group of people, many of them. Present-day world leaders and policymakers, very bright, intelligent group of people. They have far more letters after their name and degrees than I do. However, intelligence is not the same as awareness and consciousness. You can have all that intelligence. Howard Hughes has intelligence. But he was engulfed in fear. So much so that he was afraid to leave his room. Intelligence doesn't protect you from fear. Vigilance and awareness does. And intelligence doesn't protect you from ignorance. Only the ability to understand other people's point of view. That larger consciousness that allows us to look at things from multiple points of view. That protects us from ignorance. It allows us to see other choices than just the fight or flight choice. Evil is basically the combination of fear and ignorance. And those engaged in aggression as a solution to that path create more fear in other people and drive them to more reactions. More reactions of aggression. It's an echo chamber that gets louder and louder until everybody's deaf. They can't hear themselves think. They can't observe their own thoughts. They can't notice the distortions of logic and why they're so busy thinking and trying to how to hurt another person. Get back at someone so that they can protect themselves. Why their mind is so busy engaged in that thought process 
they completely miss what's happening a couple layers below that logic in terms of fear and the assumptions of fear-based beliefs that are creating that fear. And that is where the real problem is. That's where the real problem of conflict, whether it's on an international scale, whether it's with another person, your partner, your beloved, or whether it's with yourself. We try and beat ourselves into change. And then we resent the beating, even if it's coming from our inner judge, and we fight back. We fight back against the inner judge in our mind that we perceive to be abusing us. We even come to hate it, try and make it go away. We become aggressive towards it. We feel victimized and abused by our inner judge. And we rebel and we fight. And we become angry and angrier. And then, of course, the inner judge judges us for being angry. I shouldn't be this angry. And berates us even more. We feel abused by the inner judge. We feel hurt. And the reaction to feeling that pain we push back. We do this same kind of international conflict in the microcosm of our mind and then it plays out in the outer world on a mass scale. This is the dynamic of human suffering and one aspect. And the enemy is not outside of us. The enemy, the root of the disease, is fear. And the seeds of that root are believing in lies that make us afraid. Yes, life is terminal. And this body will certainly experience pain in this adventure called life. It's just kind of inevitable. But I don't need to be afraid of it. That part's a choice. That part's a choice. As best as I can, the more vigilant and conscious I am, the more I practice it, the more it becomes a choice. I'll leave you with a couple things of what to go do about it. Uh, one wonderful gentleman named Richard Feynman. I'll leave a YouTube reference on this podcast as well. Um, Nobel Prize winning physics professor. And a wonderfully creative way of how to evolve our thinking. Beyond old paradigms. Just as a thought, as an inspiration. Uh, of course, the studies of Gandhi to find a different way to fight aggression, to change the paradigm of people, the emotional state of fear, and embrace compassion and understanding and different points of view as opposed to aggression as a solution. Because aggression as a solution, anger as a solution, 
You know, that's the insanity. That's the insanity. We can't keep looking for solutions and going about them the same way. We'll end up with the same results. But if we don't address fear, we're just moving furniture around on the Titanic. And that place to address fear, it's only one place to do it. In your own mind. In your own mind. Your own temptation to be afraid or to be the aggressor. That fight or flight instinct. Fight or flight over what someone thinks of you. A critical comment that we might feel hurt by or take personally. Create an emotional reaction. Just the idea of it, the fear of it, could cause us to become an aggressor just in a verbal conversation. Put them down before they put us down kind of attitude. That dynamic takes place in the smallest of moments and it's in our own mind and is the only place to fight this war. If each person takes care of the fear in their own mind, well, that will take care of all this. But what happened, I don't know. But I know what doesn't work. I know what doesn't work. What change will this bring about, I don't know. But I know what doesn't work. You see, there is no favorable result of trying to take the fear out of someone else's mind. Because if you go and try and change the fear that's in someone else's mind, you're trying to change someone else, you're trying to change someone else's beliefs. And trying to change them generally ends up with a pretty poor reaction. They feel threatened, their beliefs feel threatened, you look like a threat, and either they run away or, you know, you appear evil to them. Uh, so just keep that in mind. And that's why the only battleground is your own mind and nobody else's. You know, far be it from us to try and change the fears that are in other people's mind if we haven't cleaned up our own. You know, if you clean up your own fears and you're without fear, I know, by the way, yes, it's possible, but even just to do half of it makes your life extraordinarily different. Just to do a portion of it makes the rest of your life extraordinarily different. You know, I'm of the kind that you don't ask somebody to do something that you don't do yourself. So careful if you ever decide to challenge someone else and point out their fears. If you go and you do that work and you clean up your own fears, you have a much greater understanding of the magnitude of the challenge of what you're asking someone else to do. You're asking someone else to overcome their primal physical instinct of their human being and their mind to let go of their fight or flight dynamics and do neither. And that's not an obvious choice.
but it is conscious. Again, this is the playing field. And this is that elephant in the room that either people don't see or are afraid to talk about called fear. And it's the ramifications that happen personally in our relationships or in society or internationally when we don't address it. We go from abuser to perpetrator, aggressor, and create someone else who feels abused and they become the perpetrator and aggressor and it bounces back. That's insanity. That's insanity. That's taking the same action of aggression and expecting a different result. And we do it in our personal relationships when we get angry. As if somehow anger will change somebody else's behavior. We do it in our own relationship with ourselves, getting mad at ourselves which is self-abusive. As if through self-abuse we'll somehow change our behavior as if that will inspire us. We aren't the problem. Fear is. Fear is and believing in lies that creates the fear. So if you get mad at something, get mad at the problem. But we as human beings are not the problem. We're the ones that are abused by ourselves and by each other over this dynamic of fear that leads to aggression. So, This is all, for me, about the war on fear and the war on terror. But I'm not fighting in other people's minds. I can't. I just invite people to challenge it in their own. Providing you an understanding, perhaps, of the playing field of the mind and the emotions and how it dreams to perhaps give you a better idea what's going on so that you can take control of it. Again, the answers are not in this podcast. This is the lay of the land. This free audio is just the lay of the land. The action steps in becoming an observer of the mind and your emotions and finding those lies and changing those beliefs, those are in the self-mastery audio program or um, join me at a workshop or, or spiritual power journey or individual coaching sessions. These are the avenues of change. I hope this has been helpful in inviting you to understand a little more about emotion and how it drives behavior, both microcosmically in our mind, in everybody's mind just about, and how 
that has ramifications for everybody in the world. There's some practical value to challenging fear. Thank you very much. This is Gary Van Wormerdam with an Awareness and Consciousness podcast from the website pathwaytohappiness.com. May you be happy in your life. May you love well in whatever path you create for yourself. Thank you.